I think hobbies are really important. And I think, you know, with people who are doing the work with TBM, that is a perfect time to kind of see that as a hobby after work or, you know, maybe at the end of the day to do the work so you can completely immerse yourself in something else and not worry about the sort of day stresses, if you will. From To Be Magnetic, this is The Expanded Podcast with your host, Lacey Phillips. And your host, Jessica Gill. As the leading destination for neural manifestation, we dispel the woo-woo in order to help you create real, tangible results based on neuroplasticity, psychology, epigenetics, and energetics. Our goal is to normalize the practice of manifestation and empower you to get into the driver's seat of your life in order to manifest the experiences, relationships, and things that most align with your authenticity. And by pressing play, the process begins. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Expanded. Jessica here. You're having a fabulous week. We have some really exciting news. So the Magnetic Self Speaking Tour that Lacey and I will be going on this fall. The New York stop is two weeks away. I cannot believe it. I'm so excited to get back on the East Coast. It is such a momentous city for me in so many ways. I've had so many moments of love manifestations. I got engaged in New York, but also self-love manifestations. And I think those are even more powerful because they help develop and cultivate the relationship we have with ourselves. One of the things we'll be touching on at the speaking tour is our blind spots. So whether we're manifesting love, money, travel, career, finances, a home, a family, a friendship, or even deeper relationships and better relationships to ourself, oftentimes we can run into blind spots, which means we can't see how we are in our own way. That's why having an accountability buddy is so huge to the manifestation work because so often we can look at someone else and point out their blind spots, but when it comes to ourselves, we might have the hardest time doing so. And our blind spots can be those tricky energetics that get in the way. So during the Magnetic Self Speaking Tour, Lacey and I will be diving into blind spots, how they impact what we're manifesting when it comes to love or money or any category and give you some new tools and exercises to navigate. Our New York tour stop is sponsored by Bohemian and Bouge, which is a small company birthed out of a to be magnetic manifestation list. It's so cool to see all of your manifestations coming to life and coming so full circle. And all of our tickets to all cities, New York, Vancouver, and Los Angeles are almost sold out. So if you haven't snagged your ticket yet, be sure to do so before they are gone. On today's episode, we have a guest who has been on my manifestation guest list for quite some time, Nicole's Neuroscience. Nicole Vignola is a neuroscientist, corporate consultant, brain performance coach, and speaker, and is committed to making neuroscience tangible for the masses. So much of what Nicole teaches is very much in tandem with the to be magnetic work. In this episode, Nicole and I talk through the dopamine reward cycle, which basically means why we feel a connection to continue to go on social media, even after we're not getting any positive impact back, why we get stuck in that scroll, or perhaps why we keep interrupting ourselves when we're in the middle of a productive day. We talk about procrastination, self-care, habit stacking, decision-making, burnout, the simple magic of a big sigh, how to recover in your brain from doom scrolling. What is the best thing when you know you've been caught in that scroll or stuck looking at something or watching 10 hours of Netflix, whatever it is, how do you get your brain back on track in a good reward cycle? Also the fixed and growth mindset. We are diving into all things, brain, habits, self-care, and really actionable tips in order to build a better routine and create neuroplasticity and neural pathways towards that routine and be able to disconnect from the limiting beliefs and behaviors in the routines that we're trying to drop off. There is so much to learn here. I'm so excited and enjoy the episode. And now a word from our partners. 
speaking of manifestations, one major manifestation that has come through for me recently is Bond Charge's infrared PEMF mat. Their PEMF mat, which stands for Pulse Electromagnetic Field, is a magnetic energy mat that sends energy waves to work with your body's natural magnetic field and improve your overall well-being. Now, I originally heard of PEMF mats back in the day. I used the first one at Lacey's Forest Retreat House, and I kind of didn't really think it was going to do anything at first. And when I laid on this mat, I'm telling you, my whole body just relaxed. My nervous system relaxed, and I fully was able to calm down. Fast forward a few years later, one of our absolute favorite companies, Bond Charge, has launched their own PEMF mat, and it is fully loaded with all the best biohacking techniques you can imagine. So not only do they have multiple frequency settings, one for delta waves to improve deep sleep, one for grounding and earthing that is in the frequency of Schumann's resonance, which is the Earth's magnetic field frequency, one for alpha waves to increase calm creativity, one for beta waves for logical thinking, conscious thought, or meditation, and one that cycles through all four to really align all different parts of your body. But that's not all. They also have red, near-infrared, and far-infrared light wave frequencies. You've heard me talk about this before, but red light therapy can be so impactful for muscle soreness, tension, pain in the body, detoxification, and so many more things. It is also packed with tourmaline gemstones, germanium gemstones, and amethyst crystals, which all help to balance your mood, keep you calm, activate spiritual awareness, open intuition, and attract positive ions from your body to keep you in that balanced state. Like I said, this thing is fully loaded. So once we received it, we unloaded it into our living room and it honestly hasn't left the floor because I find myself jumping on it multiple times a day when I want to meditate before the start of my day or when I'm needing to process and do a DI. It helps to take me deeper, calm my body, calm my nervous system. It is so good for meditation practices. It just helps you go a lot deeper. And when you are needing grounding breaks throughout the day, it is fantastic. So if you are interested in trying Bond charges new infrared PEMF mat. You can use the code MAGNETIC, that's all caps, M-A-G-N-E-T-I-C for 15% off. Again, that's MAGNETIC, M-A-G-N-E-T-I-C for 15% off. Or you can go to bondcharge.com backslash pages backslash magnetic and check out some of the other incredible biohacking low EMF products that Bond Charge has to offer. All right, on to the episode. Nicole, welcome to the Expanded Podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. Thank you very much. Okay, so one question we like to ask everyone when we kick off, do you know your sun, moon, and rising sign? A little woo-woo astrology for everyone. I don't, but I was hoping maybe you could help me out with that. <laughs> I know I'm a Gemini for sure. I don't know anything about this. And this is one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you because I was hoping we could sort of uncover this purely because I actually did know that my rising, no, my um, my moon was in Leo because my partner's a Leo. And I don't know if that means anything, but obviously, you know, we're, we're quite connected. So. Okay. So this is, I am not an expert by any means, but this is just being interested in the subject for so many years. But the Gemini I think is like very creative moon and Leo. So Leo is like the part of us that is our confidence, our bravery, able to be seen. So that's probably why you have like a public facing career, <laughs> you know, like that makes sense. That absolutely rings true. Okay. And what is your cultural background and upbringing? So I was born in Italy and then I grew up in South Africa. My mom's South African. So I lived in Italy for 10 years and in South Africa for 10 years. And I actually moved to England for 10 years. When I was there, I was kind of moving around. I lived in Germany. I lived in Ibiza. Now I live in Portugal. I've just moved here. So yeah. Did your upbringing inform your career path? Like how did you get into the neuroscience field? Yeah, I guess somewhat. You know, my parents are not academics at all, but my neighbor was, he was a doctor, but my father had schizophrenia. So I felt like there was always an element of me really wanting to understand the brain. And that again, from a young age, I was kind of like, yes, but I need to know more. Like, you know, he's suffering with all these things, but why? And um, I think that really propelled me to wanting to go into study brains. At, at first, I wanted to be a doctor. 
and I actually didn't get in. I tried three times and I didn't get in, but I tried for neuroscience and I got in straight away and I just fell in love with it straight away kind of it was like a love-hate relationship but yes I loved it it's so interesting it's almost like the universe was like no you were supposed to study the brain that is what your interest was in go back to what you were called to absolutely and that's one of the things that I'm talking about in my book because one of the things that I'm talking about is like this fixed mindset and then growth mindset so our fixed mindsets basically we attach our identity to the outcome so for me it was kind of like I had to be a doctor because I told myself that my whole life my parents kind of insinuated as well my neighbor was there to you know play a big part of it in my life so it was kind of like that was my destiny and every time I didn't get in it would kind of like really knock me as a person and when I started to learn that actually it's got nothing to do with me as a person and who I am the growth mindset sort of explains that we learn through every adversity and I did I, I got into neuroscience and I was kind of like wow this is like what I should have been doing the whole time so yeah it was a great sort of lesson to learn I love that you bring that up too, because I think that is one thing, you know, with the to be magnetic work, it's really shifting out of those limiting beliefs, those beliefs that think we're, we're fixed and it's very black and white to opening to that growth. What sort of, I mean, even diving right into the brain right <laughs> away, but you know, what is sort of going on in the brain when people have the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, you know, is fixed a reaction of, trauma like survival mode you know what what's happening there not necessarily so you know it could be but you know if we're in survival mode we have a sort of very narrow view of life because our basis of living is just to keep us alive so it's very hard for us to see any alternative sort of perspective on any situation when we're trying to stay alive if you will so that could be one aspect but you know we can also gain these fixed mindsets from childhood from parents telling us you know you're so smart you're so this you're so that and emphasizing on the child's sort of personality rather than their abilities so there's a woman called carol dweck she's done the the research on this since the 90s there's a wonderful piece of research and she, they basically took two groups and they told one group of children so school children that they were super smart that their results were like a, a reflection of their intelligence and then they told the other group that it was a result of them putting in so much effort and they were so good at finding solutions and you know wanting to learn and they kind of emphasized their, their learning abilities and it's funny because the ones that were told they were super smart later down the experiments they did six experiments they basically avoided any other problem that would essentially jeopardize their beliefs about them being smart so they would only pick the easy ones that they knew they could answer whereas the other group would basically try and answer all of them which is amazing and then even further down the line the group that was told that they were super smart actually lied about their scores even though the scores were really high anyway they still forged them if you will whereas the other group didn't which is amazing Wow. And then that makes me think about like, how does that impact, you know, if they're choosing the easier questions, does that make them less resilient to when they face adversity and they get questioned about their intelligence? Is that really disruptive versus other group? It may not be that disruptive. Yes, exactly. Also because that kind of intelligence only gets you so far and then you go out into the real world and you've got real world problems, not just, you know, school problems that you can pick and choose. Life throws everything your way. So to not attach ourselves to this identity, we've also learned through neuroscience that intelligence is not fixed. So anyone that's sort of grown up to believe that they're not intelligent, it's not true because you can practice that. I have very good working memory and I'm really good at retaining information. That's because I read so many papers and I, that's what I do for a living. But, you know, someone else that's more creative might sort of associate themselves with maybe not being as intelligent, but that's because they haven't practiced that. So that's one of the things about the book, because I'm talking about neuroplasticity, we can essentially rewire our brains to pretty much be whoever we want in, in some ways or another. You know, you can't obviously talk about extremes here, but yeah. So fascinating. It was interesting. I feel like my fiance brought this study up not that long ago and he's been working on a creative project. And when he went to show me the creative project, I was like, wow, I'm so proud of you for putting in so much effort to like do all these different elements of it. Like I see all the details. That must be like so many hours of work. This is so impressive. And he was like, oh, you acknowledge the effort. That's so wild. Like you didn't even think about it, but like your initial praise was around the effort. And he's like, 
a little bit of me wanted you to be like, you're a genius, but I appreciate the effort compliment anyways. <laughs> Bless. That's the best compliment to receive, in my opinion, anyway, because it shows your ability to sort of withstand any adversity. And then one question we get a lot with our community is around their procrastination to do the self-care work. You know, they're like, I really want to jump in and do it. I want to do the meditation. I want to do the journal prompt, but I just, I can't find the time. That kind of fear resistance is holding them back. What's going on when people are in that state of procrastination? So yeah, generally procrastination is fear, fear of the unknown, fear of the outcome, fear that you have to go through the space of change because the brain likes comfort and familiarity, even if what the brain is associated with is wrong. So you might know that something's morally incorrect, but if that's safe and that's what's known, it's better to stay where you are than it is to the sort of fear the unknown and potentially step out into something that you're not gonna, you're not sure what's going to happen. So, you know, one of the things that we can do for that, which you know goes back to having to implement these things in the first place, but is visualizing yourself how you would feel when you're in that place. And you know, you guys do a lot of that work already. So understanding that that is what happens usually helps people as well so people understand that actually there's nothing wrong with them it's just kind of the brain's way of wanting to protect its space yeah I even like that perspective too going back to the growth mindset idea which is not identifying with someone who's lazy or a procrastinator or something's wrong with it. You can never get yourself to do the things you want not identifying with it but saying like oh this is something my brain's doing to keep me safe and I can step through this fear. Yeah, and then to add another layer to that, so our brain has a limited amount of energy that it can use on conscious thinking. We have a subconscious brain and we have the conscious brain. You, you guys would know that, you know, more than anybody. But yeah. when we're trying to make changes, we have to hold this in our working memory. So now we're asking our conscious brain to really put in work which is quite taxing on the brain. So it's easier to revert back to automatic. We call it automaticity. So normally what happens is people wake up on a Monday and they'll say, I want to change X, Y, Z. I'm going to do it. This is the week that I do it. And then by Friday, they've probably forgotten or they haven't done it because, you know, old habits kick in, automaticity kicks in, and you kind of just do things the way that you normally do them. You know, you don't think about the way you brush your teeth. You don't think about your morning routine. So you have to actively think about exactly what it is you want to do. So something like visualize yourself the night before waking up not snoozing the alarm doing xyz doing your journaling doing all the work with tbm will actually help you in in, in doing that when you wake up in the morning so interesting i think about periods of my life where i've been very regular in my exercise and movement routine and then periods where i'm like i just can't get like it's like such a battle to get it in and the times that i've been regular it's in that routine habit. I, you know, close my laptop for the day and then I go out for my hike or I close the laptop and I start, you know, it's like habit stacking, getting back in that cycle. How do you recommend or what are tools that you use when you're adding in a new habit, when you want to make it become regular in the automatic pathway? So there's a couple of things. You can either sort of, like you said, stack it onto something else. So say you, I put my supplements by my coffee because I know that I will see them and I make coffee every single morning because I'm just that person. I'll wake up and I'm like coffee. So, you know, having the supplements there means that then it's kind of like an automatic thing. After I've had my coffee, it's automatic that I go and brush my teeth. So, you know, you could stack it in there. Another thing you could do is change the routine. So I've actually had that problem recently. So what I started doing is I've started waking up at 5.30 in the morning so that I can do my workout first thing. So it's kind of like I wake up and I go and then kind of everything falls into place thereafter. So as soon as I've done my workout, I'll then do my meditation, my visualization, whatever it is, journaling, and then I go and walk the dog. And then I've got so much clarity for my day. I sit down at 9 a.m. and I'm like, wow, I finished work at two o'clock and I've really had like, you know, the days. Full day. Exactly. But I had to change it because when I was still waking up around sort of 6.37, which is the usual time I wake up sometimes, I would sort of assume that I would put that either before or after work, but it didn't really work. I kept kind of falling off the bandwagon, if you will. So changing the routine to kind of like shock my system, like 5.30, we're getting up, we're going to work out, we're going to do the meditation. Because it's one of the things that really keeps me in check is making sure that I meditate on a daily basis. It's the only way I stay sane. 
I feel like it really clears so much in your brain and it expands time. You know, you could think the day is so frantic, you don't have five minutes to even sit down and be still. And that five minutes of being still, it almost feels like it gave you two extra hours in the day. Absolutely. I just had a five minute sort of meditation before we jumped on because I've already had a, a full day waking up at 5.30. So I knew that I wanted to replenish sort of energy resources for the brain, for lack of a better term. That's that's my current research at the moment is I'm looking at how we make decisions in the afternoon after a whole day's work, worth of work and whether something like meditation versus scrolling on Instagram can improve our decision making skills. Because what happens is most people come home from work, they're tired, they start taking out on their kids, their partners, you know, whoever's around them. Then they start making bad life choices where they start sort of ordering in and not prepping their food for the next day. And it's kind of like a snowball effect of bad, you know, put that in inverted commas, of habits that kick in again because we're tired. The cognitive load is too much by the end of the day. And I truly believe, and I'm still yet to prove this, is that it's because when we are taking breaks throughout the day, we don't take proper strategic breaks. So we're going on social media, we're scrolling, we're checking emails. I'm the worst for that. You know, I, I really struggle to take a proper break. So 15 to 20 minutes of actual decompressing the brain from any external stimuli means that you can go in into that default mode network. I think I've heard you guys talk about that before and we can sort of recap on that a little bit. But you can just go in and feel how you're feeling. You know, you can feel check in with yourself. How are you feeling? What's up? What's going on? Are there aches? Are there pains? Because we don't think about those things on a daily basis until we come home, we lie in bed at night, and then we start worrying about all the things that we you know, should have probably been sifting through throughout the day. Well, this kind of goes into that concept you've written about on your Instagram about self-interrupting. Yeah. And I think about burnout a lot because I think a lot of people lean into that where we have so much stimuli in our life and our, our workload can feel intense and it's like, okay, we're leaning towards that burnout, but how much of that burnout is self, I don't want to say self-induced, but like how much of it can we mitigate because we're not checking our phones in between things or, you know, so what is, what is self-interruption? So self-interruption is that habit of you interrupting yourself. So it's your brain's way of seeking dopamine. So I have that all the time. I sit down, I'm about to ride. I start getting into a flow and I'm like, Instagram coffee. Ooh, let me just go check that thing. So I have to, I've been actively pulling myself back into my work where I'm going, no, you can check that in 10 minutes. There's absolutely nothing on Instagram right now that's going to, you know, because the thing with me is it's like catch 22. I've always got a notification on Instagram, no matter. So it's a bit like, it's a minefield for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way. So yes. and it's not just me. Everyone has to do this, but I have to sort of physically pull myself back into it where I kind of tell myself, no, you're not going to do it. You can have another coffee in an hour. You've already had one. And and just pulling that focus back in because it's so easy to be like, oh, I can get a quick dopamine hit from Instagram instead of the work because I know the work's going to give me a dopamine hit, but it's like I have to put effort in. And one of the things with dopamine is that there's nothing wrong with scrolling. There's nothing wrong with sugar. There's nothing wrong with any of these sort of instant gratifications. It's just how often we do them. So the fundamental rule to dopamine is that there needs to be effort involved for reward. So we have, I would believe as a society, are getting accustomed to being able to get that reward elsewhere very quickly without putting in effort, which means that we override the long-term gains by having short-term pleasure. So that's in a nutshell, self-interruption. Let's go into the dopamine sort of reward cycle because I always thought of dopamine as like you get that almost high feeling from an accomplishment or doing something, but it's actually about the pursuit of that thing that gives us that boost. Yeah. So it has different ways of working. So if you have an expected outcome, then dopamine will rise in pursuit of that reward. Like you said, there'll be a, a minor spike when you get the reward, but normally that reward is associated with feelings of accomplishment that are related to serotonin, oxytocin. There's a book called The Molecule of More, and he kind of describes them as the here and now neurotransmitters. So they are responsible for the way that you feel in this present time. Whereas dopamine wants there, it wants what's in the future, it wants what's going on behind the door and elsewhere. So I thought that, that was a great analogy because that's exactly what happens. We get the reward and then dopamine's like, okay, on to the next thing. But then the other way that dopamine works is that 
the reward is unexpected, you will get a dopamine spike because you weren't expecting it. So that is normally how it works with notifications, especially if, again, if you're not expecting them. That's kind of how it works as well with kind of like texting your ex, which is one of the things I've spoken about a lot is that people will text exes, especially on a Sunday when they're hungover. And that's just my anecdotal sort of evidence, um, <laughs> not actually from a paper, but uh, from, you know, speaking to people and being in there in that situation myself as well is because we want to know whether we still have it. So will we get the reward? Will it come? Will it, won't it? We don't know. So it's unexpected. And then when it does, it reinforces that behavior because dopamine is there to reinforce a behavior that brings you pleasure. I'm thinking too of that self-identification when people are like, oh gosh, I'm so weak. I can't believe I texted my ex or, oh my gosh, why can't I put my phone down? It's like there's actual neurotransmitters in the brain that are excited for you to do that. They're interested in you to do that. And so I guess when people notice that come up, first part is kind of awareness. Okay, if I'm going about my work day and I feel that impulse to check my phone right now, even though I have absolutely nothing to check, I'm not looking up anything. It's just that gut feeling to check. Not even gut feeling, I would say impulse to check. How can people start to take that pause in those moments. Like if they start noticing like, oh, wow, I am doing that. And even thinking about that self-interrupting pattern, I'm like, yeah, I'll usually get something interesting done at work. And I'm like, okay, cool. I got this. And it's almost like I'm so excited by accomplishing that one piece that I'm like, I'll check my phone or I'll go up and get, you know, chocolate from the fridge or another cup of coffee or I'll like walk around. I'm like, what am I doing? Just sit down and finish the tasks. How did I end up here? Yeah, I think understanding that that is definitely a thing that happens. So I don't know if you've ever forgotten your phone at home or left it in another room and you kind of just want to reach into your pocket and you know it's not there, but you do it anyway. Or if you delete Instagram and you still touch where the app used to be. But yes, yeah, so I think understanding that when that thought arises, you can help yourself redirect, which is what I'm doing while I'm book writing. I'm kind of saying, okay, Nick, I know you really want to check Instagram, but if you leave enough space between this trigger and the response which is how habits become formed and how neuroplasticity works is that you can essentially dismantle that firing pattern so if a trigger takes off and you respond to it those neurons get bonded to one another so that they become automatic and by leaving a space between those things it means that you can sever that communication and the the strength of it it can weaken over time that's what I'm currently working on right now. It's just weakening that response or that trigger at least, or the response to the trigger where I'm going, oh, I already want to check. And then I'm going, no, there's no need to right now. And then over time, I do personally believe that that space becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, you can start to observe more. And that's the same with sort of emotional triggers and responses as well. So, you know, your partner walks in and you're writing an email, and you're all irritable and they say something, you're like, what? But over time, you can kind of increase the space between your response that you end up kind of like taking a breath and then just going, hey, what's up? I'm just writing an email. Can I get back to you in 10 minutes? That's really helpful too, thinking about people who deal with a lot of emotional triggers and that they're just uncovering like that trigger means this or, you know, I have to go work on that. But if we can allow it to come up, feel the sensation and almost like give ourselves a pause for as long as we can withstand before the reaction, we're helping to weaken that association pathway. Exactly. Because most of the time we learn these things through association without realizing. So sometimes you will observe a parent doing that. I personally that I've done undone a lot of my triggers because I've seen the way my family have interacted in the past so for me it was a big thing and I remember my mom coming to visit me she was getting really panicky in the car and I was kind of thinking oh my god I can see why I've sort of been so panicky my whole life and it's I'm not anymore it's something I've really had to work through but I could see it like it's it's observational knowledge that I've gained through how the world should operate and that's what tends to happen and not always you know you can you can gain trigger and responses in other ways through emotional dysregulation and but a lot of the times it's also about how we've been raised and how we've been taught to respond to situations so it's a really valuable lesson I think for people to teach their children to just take a pause so that they have that space to think before they can respond. Now I'm like okay in the reverse if you wanted to strengthen a new neural pathway. Let's say you wanted a a belief of something positive, a positive reinforcement. You know, you're faced with a difficulty and you're like, okay, I can handle this. I can handle these types of situations. Is there a certain hack 
in real time that people can do to help bond those two together? I would say it's just repetition. It's repetition and it's positive association. And again, also neutral association, understanding the scenario and not necessarily attaching positivity to everything. Like if you want to change a thought, for example, if you're in a state of you know distress, you can't tell yourself, actually, this is going to be fine because the brain knows there's potentially not in that state of mind. So you have to sort of, again, give yourself a space before you can regulate and then you can reason with yourself and attach more positive or neutral responses. Like I'm very anxious about this particular thing, but I also know that I've been through this before. So no matter what the outcome is, I can get through it regardless, you know, instead of saying I will absolutely be fine because, you know, that's, that's not necessarily something you can promise yourself. I love that because it's not like spiritual bypass. You're not like, okay, everything feels good, but your brain is like, no, we don't feel good. We're in a fear response or we're in a panic response. Like, exactly. We don't feel great. So it sounds like the neutral response is it's recognizing and acknowledging what we're feeling and then saying like, okay, we're feeling that. Is there an opening for an alternative interpretation of the situation? Yeah. Exactly. One of the things I also teach is, I'm sure that anyone that's listened to Dr. Andrew Huberman would know about this, but it's the physiological sigh. So the double inhale with a long exhale, which is the quickest way to regulate your central nervous system back down to a parasympathetic state. And also it's perfect for the moment, right? Because you can kind of do it without anyone really seeing you. You can kind of just, you know, take a deep breath and sigh it out, which in line with what I've been saying, gives you that space that I've been talking about where you can take a second to disassociate particular triggers and responses. You had this in as a tip in the self-interruption thing is like, you know, just set a timer, take one minute, give yourself the reward, but first give yourself a minute to help, you know, craft that distance. And you think, how could a sigh really change all of my, you know, neural pathways to different things and separate the triggers? But it's one micro step at a time. It's do that side this time and then next time. And then over time, it expands upon itself. And I do believe that it's like small little steps that kind of then amount to something big. Sometimes we want these big answers. We want the grandeur sort of finale, but actually the little things that we put in on a daily basis that seemingly look like nothing that then amount to something really, really big, because it's not about what you're doing now for a month, two months, six months. It's what are you doing consistently for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, because do you want to be 60 and still be dealing with all these problems? Or do you want to, you know, be free and hopefully way before then as well? There are so many people out there settling for unfulfilling relationships or people who are stuck in toxic jobs, living in places and spaces that don't inspire them, and especially people who feel like they'll never be able to afford the things and the life that they truly desire. How do I know that? Because it was me before I discovered that manifestation is actually a totally viable, scientifically proven method of creating the life you want. I'm Lacey, I'm the founder of To Be Magnetic, and if you're not familiar with us, we at TBM offer workshops that teach you how to manifest literally everything from love to money to career to beyond. Our courses are the most effective manifestation method on the market, and that's because of a secret that I discovered years ago about manifestation, which is you do not manifest from your thoughts. You manifest from your subconscious beliefs. So after decades of client research and input from leading doctors and therapists, we design courses that help you rewire your subconscious mind to align with what you want to manifest. And the best part of all for any skeptic out there, our work is completely scientifically proven to work. Just ask the tens of thousands of members inside our Pathway membership, which gives you unlimited access to all of our workshops, tools, and offerings that you'll use over the course of a year. This includes workshops on inner child, shadow, boundaries, love, money, the infamous ruts, and the horrible rock bottoms, and so much more. Use our special code EXPANDED, all caps, E-X-P-A-N-D-E-D, to receive $20 off your first TBM purchase. Again, that's all caps, EXPANDED, E-X-P-A-N-D-E-D. Okay, now back to the episode. 
one thing I always think about is when people get stuck in, it's not necessarily hyperfixation because that might be a very specific kind of more nuanced thing, but it's that very intense, almost like they're in a trance on watching a TV show or uh, scrolling on their phone. You know, they kind of come up and they're like, whoa, I've been on here for like an hour, two hours or whatever it is. What is the best thing to do for the brain afterwards? Because that kind of means what, like our, our dopamine system was hijacked. What's going on when that happens? Yeah, so dopamine actually changes our perception of time, which is one of the reasons why we end up going into this kind of like a time warp when we come out and we're like, whoa, I can't believe I just lost 40 minutes. That's dopamine. That essentially, it warps time, if you will. So it makes time appear to be slower. Now, what tends to happen after something like that is that the, the dopamine is sort of a, sat in a pain and pleasure scale, meaning that whenever you come off a sort of dopamine, just call it a dopamine high, the brain is going to try and reset. And through resetting, it's going to give you that feeling of pain. Like I want more. I want to go and eat more chocolate. I want to go on Instagram again, because that's what feels nice. And when you tilt that scale too much, that seesaw, it becomes addiction. But the way to reset that balance is to sit with the boredom, to sit with the pain of I want more but if I sit with this long enough, the seesaw is going to, or the scale, whatever you want to call it, is kind of going to come back to a more neutral position. I think that's so helpful because I even think about a friend of mine dealing with, she she has an issue with face picking and she'll notice that if she, now she has a timeout where she has to sit in the middle of the room, set a timer so she doesn't kind of go down the rabbit hole of it. And I thought that was so powerful. And that's kind of backing up exactly what you're saying. It's like, instead of going down that rabbit hole of whatever she's getting the comfort through that behavior, now she can just take a pause long enough to interrupt that hole that makes her want to go do that. Yeah, and it might also be a learned behavior that kind of just happens again on automatic without you realizing. So, you know, something that you might have to pay attention to for a while until that becomes automatic, not picking your face. Could that apply to any addictive behaviors is like trying that pause or that timeout or that boredom moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, depending on the severity of the addiction and whether it's, you know, grounded in substance use, because that will have other sort of physical addictions, meaning that, you know, there's dependencies. But I actually did a live with Dr. Judd, who's a uh, addiction psychiatrist from Brown. And he was talking about this in the context of smoking. And he says to people that if they want to smoke and if really they can't stop themselves, they should. And then normally what happens is when they allow themselves and they think about it in hindsight, instead of beating themselves up, if they just think about all the reasons why they did. So why did you do that? How did you feel? They actually tend to break their patterns a lot easier and quicker than if they try and restrain and then they beat themselves up about it. Because beating yourself up about it is a sense of control. So what tends to happen is people smoke and then they go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have eaten the cake. I shouldn't pick my face. I shouldn't have done this. And then there's kind of like this cathartic feeling of control where you're like, no, I'm in control of the situation. So it's okay if it happens again, because I have this mechanism that can help me gain control of it. And then you end up in a cycle where you're kind of like repeating, repeating, repeating the same thing over and over again. Yeah, well, also because shame is such a bad motivator for change. Exactly. But understanding the root cause of things. So, you know, people tend to smoke because the clock strikes 12 and it's their lunch break. And that's what they've been doing for the last 10 years. Or they come home from work. And again, it's a way of decompressing. Or, you know, maybe it's face picking because you're stressed. Or maybe you're even just, you know, in a habit of it, like you're watching a film and that's just what your hands do, because that's what the sort of nerves have been repeating for so long. And I, I love the idea through neuroplasticity that that is just like the trigger response moment and they're connected and we can break that separation. That's what I love about neuroplasticity is that neurons, I'm sure you've heard of them, neurons that fire together, wire together, but neurons that fire apart, break apart. So I love it. That's great. Let's break all the bad habits. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely doable. It's just, yeah, it's a lot harder because it's a lot easier to, you know, do the things that we shouldn't. But it's just quickly cycling back. You were talking about, you know, habits and routines. And it's interesting because I have been through quite a weird phase in my life where I'm writing a book. I'm 
finishing my research. I'm, I'm managing a lot, moving to a new country, and I could feel my brain kind of dealing with a lot, having to drive on a different side of the road. I'm going to the supermarket, and I'm very confused about what's going on on the shelves. It's not automatic, you know. That something that's supposed to happen with automaticity is now something that is actually taking up more energy from me. So. In the beginning, the first month or two, I felt myself kind of all over the place with my with my self care, and kind of like sleeping in, going to bed late, kind of do whatever I wanted, if you will. And I felt so much worse. And now I'm sort of I'm back in it. I'm like, I've got to put these things in place because I'm in an unprecedented time in my life right now. But if I have all the things in place, it means that I can cushion the amount of stress. And that's what I wanted to say to you earlier about the survival mode as well. It's like what I'm doing for myself at the moment is putting these things in place that can buffer and facilitate me through this period of stress so that I can say I'm sleeping eight to nine hours so that I can then be stressed in a day because I can't get rid of that stress right now. I just need to find ways to like, you know, nurture myself in between. It's about the recovery. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. It's sort of like doing all the things you can to, to regulate your nervous system while you're dealing with high amounts of stress. I even think about a lot of our members when they do a lot of the inner child work and they're going back and they're working on reprogramming some really big beliefs and memories and just sitting with emotions they've uncovered that they haven't sat with or looked at for years they're like, I'll be sleeping and I'll need all the self-care during that time because there's so much going on that the brain and the body's processing through that emotion. Absolutely. And a really interesting thing is that firstly, when we sleep, we actually consolidate memories and we consolidate new memories from the day. So if you learn something new throughout the day, the memories are kind of fragmented in your brain. They don't really make sense. And then when we sleep, brain consolidates them into something that's coherent that it can then later use in respect to another situation. So you kind of start associating with like, actually, I can use this piece of information for something else later down the line. If we don't get sleep, those memories stay kind of staccato and broken up, if you will. So we don't really retain really good information. So sleep is really important for helping us, you know, through these processes of change. And then something else that I just learned from a friend of mine today, actually, his name's Naz Nero on Instagram. He was explaining that when we sleep, the reason we dream is because the brain is, again, making sense of all the things that have happened through the day, especially if something was very stressful or traumatic. But there's no norepinephrine involved when we're sleeping. So the brain can basically consolidate and make sense of these memories without the added stress on top of it. So dreaming, especially if you have vivid dreams, are a way, the brain's way of essentially making sense of things without the added fear and anxiety that comes attached to the event happening during the day. Wow, that's so fast. Even when you have like the craziest, wildest dreams, it's just kind of like interpreting and sorting. Yeah, and actually crazy wild dreams that aren't associated with sort of the day stresses. So this is wild. They've done AIs on, the, on this and they basically program the computer with certain information and then they asked it to come up with a solution and it could. But then when they asked it for a different solution, the computer couldn't come up with the solution. So what they did is they basically inserted chaos, and I'll put that in inverted commas, into the computer. So they programmed with a whole bunch of data that didn't make any sense. And then the computer come up, could come up with any given solution. So then they hypothesized that the reason the brain does these crazy dreams, so you dream about, I don't know, being the president and you jump to sort of like being a bear and all these crazy things that happen, is because your brain is essentially trying to find ways to come up with solutions should that scenario ever occur. Wow. Should you ever into a bear? <laughs> so it's inserting chaos. So it almost is like a, an upgrading software. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's kind of sort of, yeah, making sense of any potential solution and what could be the potential outcome to any given problem that you give it, if you will. So interesting. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I blow my mind. I know. Dream World is wild. There are sometimes yeah. I have like a full feature film in yeah. my head and I'm like, that was pretty good. Like it could maybe yeah. get an Oscar. <laughs> Completely agree with that. <laughs> and so talk about norepinephrine. Is that, am I getting yeah. correct? Talk about that and what that's doing in the brain, how we utilize it, what's going on there. So norepinephrine is the brain's version of epinephrine or adrenaline. So it's the same molecule, essentially. It's just that it's a neurotransmitter in the brain. And then you've got adrenaline in the body. Now, people tend to associate stress with bad stress. But the thing is, we need an element of norepinephrine release, an element of acute stress, so that we can you know, have these conversations. 
so that we can learn, so that we can concentrate, so we can run, so we can do all these wonderful things that require us to be in a sympathetic state. Now, the problem is that when we remain in these states of stress, so it's one of the things that I teach my clients and, you know, I go into corporates and I teach about this stuff all the time, is that we want to be able to regulate from the stress because we're always going to deal with stress, but it's about how we regulate from it so we don't linger in a state of stress for the whole day and then let it ruin the rest of our day, let it ruin our evening times with our families. There's an, an amazing work going on at the moment by Aaliyah Crum. She basically looks at stress mindset and how when you tell people that stress is really bad for them, their heart rates go up. And when you tell them that stress is really good for them in the same study, their heart rates and blood pressure comes down. So they're having a different physiological response to their belief around stress. Wow. Okay. Now guys, think about it. What did you do? How did you feel when she mentioned that stress was good? And how did you feel when she said that stress was bad too? <laughs> so stress, you know, can be good or bad. It's at a, but you know, if whether we can use it to hone in on whatever we're doing. So, you know, I'm currently stressed, but actually I'm writing a book. So I know that this is going to be great. I can use this as fuel, but then making sure that I really regulate from that when I come home from my working day writing because you know we don't want to stay in a state of stress yeah like even the creative process when people are in whether they're writing a book or they're creating art or they're on set for a movie or you know any kind of creative form there is that sense of stress new ideas are coming through you're like how am i going to get it onto the canvas whatever that may be there's a channeling process going on in the body you you don't even think i know a lot of my friends are musicians and they're like I will be so in the zone that I will forget to eat, you know, like they can't even remember. And then they're like, oh, shoot, I just totally messed up my system and body. Like, why did I do that? But they're in that kind of acute stress, really in the zone, very productive. But I think kind of the goal is then how do you rebalance? How do you make sure you're getting nourished when you have those moments as well? Yeah. So, you know, coming home, meditating, unwinding, anything that works for you, taking these kind of breaks throughout the day that I was talking about where you meditate in the daytime, doing the pauses where, you know, I've just experienced something really stressful, but I'm going to do the breathing, uh, the double inhale, the long exhale to just get my nervous system back down and then reframing that stress as well, you know, so reframing it to see that actually you could be adaptative towards the stress. You can use this as fuel because then that also empowers you to be able to switch off from it. Because that's where the sort of the caveat is, is that people can't switch off on their stress because they see it as something awful. And don't get me wrong, stress can be awful, especially if you're going through, you know, something like a divorce that doesn't go away or, you know, illness or whatever. These things are obviously harder to manage, but making sure that we have those buffers in place like sleep, meditation, journaling, exercise. You know, if you're going through a very stressful period, I would encourage lighter exercise, maybe something like walking, swimming, yoga, instead of, you know, unless you're, somebody that's a conditioned exercise goer but you know exercise helps us separate the pathways of stress so what I mean by that is I want you to think about a boxer in a boxing ring when they're in the boxing ring they are able to stay really mentally calm while their body's rampant with adrenaline and that is because they've practiced that so many times that they're able to separate those two systems so by voluntarily putting ourselves through stressful situations that are positive for us and again reframing them for ourselves so exercise is good that's why people who hate exercise have such a hard time with it because they see it as such a negative thing it's associated to negative aspects of it but people that love it and people that can see it as like a positive thing in their lives they can then translate that into their day-to-day -day basis so what that means is the threshold for stress goes up. So now all of a sudden you need more things to trigger you before you sort of blow up or go into a, a state of panic. So it's almost like exercise is that acute amount of stress and it will help us basically discern like, okay, this is an intentional 20 minute workout where I have that acute stress. And when I'm done, I can calm down. That's why I love when especially in yoga classes, they'll do meditations or Shavasana at the end yeah. because it like fully, I feel like a whole nother person. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, we call it hormesis. It's basically putting yourself through voluntary stress acutely. And it's something that if you have to do for a very, very long time would probably be not beneficial for you, but in the short term, it's very good for you. So things like breath work, things like saunas, cold showers, exercise, even fasting. And I don't really talk about fasting all that much because there's a whole lot of mental stuff attached to that. But for anyone that does well with it, it's the same concept. So we're putting ourselves through stress, but it's voluntary stress where we're in control. We know we're safe. 
and then we can regulate them from that very quickly. Does that help with the neural pathway of, of safety? Because that's a one, one big thing is like returning to that baseline of safety, knowing that you're safe, especially when we're in moments where we are safe, but our emotional brain kind of takes over and is like, ah, like, but what about all these worries? But in the moment you're safe, if we have that acute stress and then we come back down and regulate again, does that help strengthen the neural pathway of like, okay, safety is with me. I can, I'm okay. Absolutely, because it gives you a sense of control. You're taking your body into a stressful situation, but you're in control of it, and then you can regulate back down. So over time, you're essentially teaching your central nervous system that this is safe. A similar concept to stretching, if you will. So bear with me. If I had to put you under general, you would be able to stretch in any way. Box splits, front splits, whatever. You would be able to do it, backbends, because there's no central nervous system telling your brain that this is not a safe position to be in because you're switched off. But normally people aren't flexible because the central nervous system doesn't know how far it can go. So it's kind of like holding back in. Okay, so what you do is you stretch. You're going, okay, look, we can go here and it's still safe. And then over time, you can go further and further and further because you're reprogramming your central nervous system, your sensory cortex and your motor cortex to communicate to say this position we're in full box split is absolutely safe. There's not going to be any injury here. (laughs) <laughs> so if someone was in general anesthesia and did a split but couldn't do it before, could they like pull a ligament or no because the body's so relaxed? Yeah, I mean, unless there's sort of ligament issues or, you know, prior injuries to the ligament, like, you know, ligament tear, then yeah, you would be able to essentially put them in a box. <laughs> don't try this at home. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I don't think everyone is general anesthesia they're going to put under. That is so fascinating. Well, it also just speaks to the power of the mind and how much the mind, the body is in control of our limitations or our perceived limitations. Yeah. So, you know, I've got, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but there's so much research around this. And one of the ones I talk about the most and anyone that's heard me on podcasting, I go, oh, here she goes again with the same (laughs) research, but I just love it. So in 1995, Pascual Leone was a a neuroscientist and he took a, a group of people and he split them up into three groups. Group one did nothing. Group number two had to play a five finger piece on the piano. They never played the piano before. And group number three only had to imagine that they were playing that five finger piece on the piano. So they never touched the keys, yet they had the same amount of plasticity in the motor cortex to encode for them playing the piano. So that's where sort of visualization research took off because they started to realize that actually, if we visualize something, we can then recreate it in real life, because that's the important part is that you have to also do it. You can't just visualize things and it not reinforce it in in your real life because otherwise it's not going to work. But it can help us carve out these new pathways for new habits, new beliefs, new ways of thinking, which really blew my mind. I've heard of that around exercise too. Like people who have done visualizations of doing a workout, their muscle tone actually increased even if they hadn't lifted anything. I I think I've heard of that as well, and I'm definitely not surprised, but I know that athletes do it all the time. You know, Michael Phelps is one of the most famous sort of visualizers, Novak Djokovic. I've just sort of written a whole chapter on his visualization techniques and how he uses them in competition. So, you know, visualization kind of kicked off in sports before, and we're now starting to see that actually it has quite a huge impact in how we can use this for our habits, behaviors, and our ways of thinking and kind of breaking patterns of beliefs and thoughts. And then thinking about the person who might be wanting to change those habits of their day and they're thinking like, where am I going to find time to do my self-care work or when am I going to find time to exercise or I really want to stop, you know, that second cup of coffee in the afternoon, would they benefit then from in the morning having that visualization exercise of like, okay, let me go through my day in my head and what are the things I want to make sure I do and then they have a higher percentage chance of executing on it? Absolutely. So that's exactly what I would do. And what I would get clients to do is to wake up and visualize your day. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when it comes to 12 o'clock and you know you want that fifth cup of coffee, but you said you weren't going to do it? You know, I'm trying to find an alternative response for that as well. So, you know, acknowledging that, yes, that's a habit that you, it's been deeply ingrained. You really want that cup of coffee, but let's try something else. Maybe you switch to matcha or green tea or something decaffeinated now and then thereafter when you've sort of gotten used to not having that fifth cup of coffee you can change it into something else or visualizing yourself leaving work and walking to the gym instead of you know skipping it out again so that can really help 
We have a few different visualization techniques like in our deep imaginings. And one of them that I find so comforting, we call it your safe place. And you just visualize this place that feels just like everything you dream of, whether it's nature or your dream home or whatever, and and build out kind of all of the spaces in there. And so if you're feeling overwhelmed or any big stress responses come up, you can go and think about that space and be like, okay, you're in that container, you're good. And in my mind, my safe place is this dream home of sorts. And I really feel like I like live there sometimes, you know, like I don't live there (laughs) now, but in my mind, I'm like, no, it's so real. Like I see all of the things, like it is such a real place. It's so interesting. I love that. And I love that because I've done something similar and my safe place is me lying in the ocean because a few years ago I went through quite a sort of heavy breakup and I had a lot of attachment issues, a lot of abandonment issues from it, you know, being a child. And I had to work through a lot of this kind of like wanting to latch on to people, which is something I've always done. I've always been afraid that people are going to leave me in my life. And I imagined myself being in this ocean where things would float my way. And if they came away, I would sort of, you know, let them come, but I wouldn't attach to anything. And if they had to float away, I would let them go. And I visualized that through, you know, yoga. And I always knew that my family and friends would sort of be on the shore, keeping me safe. But I was in the water doing the work that I needed to do, which is learning to let go of things that didn't serve me and trying to stop holding on to things for the sake of like wanting safety because I was perfectly fine just floating in the water, which has transpired to everything in my life. (laughs) I love that. Well, it's also interesting because you think of attachment with parents and kids and they say like at a playground, the ideal situation is that the kid can go be on their own, play on the playground. They can look back and be like, oh, mom's over there. Okay, mom looks calm. I'm good. I can keep playing. But it's when the kid looks back and they feel like they can't go play until mom is right there with them or mom's completely missing and then they're in panic and they're playing you know, with this avoidance. And so the secure is like exactly what you were visualizing. They're right there on the shore. They're good. I can be in my own space here. I love that. I didn't think of it like that. That's great. What are any other regulation, self-regulation tips or tools that you have when, when some of those bigger emotions come up? Yeah, definitely breathing. Now, one of the other things is hobbies. So bearing in mind what I've just told you about the brain and how powerful our thoughts are, you know, with the piano experiment, you know, if we go home and we're still thinking about our stressful events at work, so say you got into an argument with a colleague, your brain is still perceiving to be in that place because it can't always necessarily, now there's nuance to the statement, tell the difference between reality and imagination. So if your brain is still thinking about that, on a primal level, it still believes that it's under threat. So having things like hobbies means that we can actually step away from that for an amount of time. So we can actually allow our stressful biomarkers to come down. And they've done research on this where they basically put people on a sofa after a stressful event and told them to be calm. And they told other people to play Tetris. And the group that had to play Tetris recovered from the stress a lot quicker because they weren't thinking about the the events, whereas the people on the sofa were still ruminating over it. the ones that came back from Tetris meant that they could sort of think about the event without the added stress. They could consolidate that event without sort of the fear and stress attached to it. They could make sense of it. So you kind of like rationalize it with a more logic mind. So I think hobbies are really important. And I think, you know, with people who are doing the work with TBM, that is a perfect time to kind of see that as a hobby. Like that's my hour or whatever, how long it it takes after work or, you know, maybe the end of the day to do the work so you can completely immerse yourself in something else and not worry about the sort of day stresses, if you will. I think too, (laughs) I've played, I think it's Clash Royale. It's like a a logic game on my phone. And that has been a automatic, like, okay, it's a, logic-based strategy game. Like I can play it on my phone. And over the years, they've added a lot of elements of flashy cards and like dopamine reward things. Right. So I was like, I think I need to like download a really just boring old school Sudoku or like card game or something. So there's no extra stimuli around it too. That's what I was going to say is that a lot of people will kind of throw themselves into social media or something else, which they think is kind of taking them away from the problem, but it's keeping them in a state of kind of like arousal and irritability. So it's not helping the problem. So the hobby needs to be something that's kind of nurturing for lack of a better term. Something that's going to help you really kind of recover from the stresses, maybe something like 
I don't know, knitting or like you said, Sudoku, yoga, jiu-jitsu, you know, a lot of people that I work with do martial arts or whatever it is, running. So it's really going to take your mind off it, but it's going to be beneficial for your mind as well because social media is not going to master it. Well, it will temporarily, but it's kind of like putting on a very bad band-aid. It's perpetuating. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think of Rick Rubin, the music producer connoisseur, yes. and he was talking about when he would run into roadblocks creatively. And instead of sitting and trying to power through that one roadblock, he would go for a swim and he would like kind of loosely hold the roadblock in his mind, but not try to solve it, but just like have it in the back there and through the process of swimming and kind of distracting his body, doing something else, the solution came. Uh huh. So that's something that I talk about all the time. And I'm actually talking about this right now in the last chapter of my book is that our brain still makes subconscious decisions for us all the time. So, you know, if you step away from a problem, the way that I do it, so say, for example, it's, it's crazy because I got a sort of call from one of the biggest publishing houses in the world. And my manager at the time was kind of like freaking out. And I, she, they asked me to put together a proposal. And I kind of did it last minute, which sounds crazy. People are like, are you crazy? <laughs> I was like, no, I planted the seed for what I wanted to know. And then I just let my brain run with it. So I'd think about these things on a walk. I'd be like, ah, light bulb moment, write it down. Going for a swim, light bulb moment, write it down. Because when I sat down and tried to work on it, it wouldn't come to me. But if I let my brain just kind of go with it, I would think about it in the most random times. And that is because you're accessing a part of your brain called the default mode network, which you guys know because I've, yeah, I've heard you talk about it before. Mm-hmm. The default mode network is an area of mind-wandering creativity. It's a place that has connectivity with your memory centers. So you can pull information from your memories and use it as inspiration. So it's when we access that default mode network, things like meditation, doing mundane chores like folding clothes, washing dishes, driving, that's where we access it. And that's where the mind really goes, I know what I want to say and what I want to do. And that's how I basically wrote my proposal for the book. Yeah. There's a story of, I think it was Tom Ford, similar thing happened. He like had a day where like, I think he was writing nocturnal animals and like all these things were coming in. And then at one moment it just struck him and he went for a drive and in driving, I think he drove from Los Angeles to Vegas and then back again. And on that drive, scene by scene, the whole movie played out in his head. And then he came back and wrote everything out that night. And they were like, how did you do that? And he's like, it was just all, he, he had access probably to the default mode network in that moment. And it just channeled through. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of plant a seed for what I want to know. So if I have a big sort of speaking event, not so much anymore, because they kind of become a bit repetitive in the sense that I've already spoken about it so many times. But right in the beginning, I'd always be like, oh, what should I talk about? And instead of sitting down and trying to plan it, I would just genuinely be like, I am planting the seed for what I want. I kind of want to do this talk on this topic let the information come to me and then I would lie in bed and kind of like rehearse the talk and it would come out all in one like a one hour talk that was ready to go and I'd be like wow okay I know what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) I think that is really good insight for anyone listening who we talk about like our pings and intuition a lot and so many times people are like okay I'm sitting down and I'm listening to my pings and they like don't have anything coming through but it's really in that ability to kind of plant the seed that you're open to the wisdom and then allow it to come out over time. I love that. I completely resonate with that. So, And that's also why I said to my editor, I want to finish the book by next week, even though it's only due at the end of September. And she was like, oh, wow, you're really powering through. And I was like, no, it's because in those last six weeks, I need to let it simmer. I can't sit in front of it and think about it. I need to go on a walk and be like, oh, I know what I'm going to write. And then come back to it. Because that's where the sort of like magical bits come in. I've written down the logic. I've written down all the sensical things and the facts. Now I need the magic to kind of come together where I'm writing something that's going to inspire people. And that doesn't come from me sitting there being like, okay, what should I write? It comes from me going for a walk, listening to a podcast or a meditation or a visualization or even just listening to inspiring music. And then I go, wow, okay, I actually know what I want to put in this bit and that bit and make the stories kind of inspire people and lift it up in a way the the glitter I call it the glitter (laughs) creative process is so so cool and fascinating it is the best feeling where can people find you connect with you get the book pre-order the book all of that fun stuff 
So the, my, I only have Instagram. It's Nicole's Neuroscience with an S, so N-I-C-O-L-E-S in neuroscience. I post daily sort of posts on everything neuroscience, but mostly how to regulate, how we can handle our emotions and what our brain is doing in particular situations like fear or self-sabotage, breakups, what's happening so people can really sort of understand why they do the behaviors that they perform. Because a lot of people think that it's a personality type most of the time, but actually it's probably just something that they've learned and they can undo. The book is Rewire. It's coming out in May 2024. If you're in the UK, you can pre-order it, but the US will only be available pre-order from January. But I will be in the US for a book tour as well. So that's very, very exciting. And I hope to see a lot of people there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Nicole. This has been very expansive and I think very motivating, inspiring for anyone out there who's working through beliefs, habits, lifestyle, anything that they're like, oh, I feel stuck. I can't get out of my own way. Yes, you can. Just one little step at a time. Yes. Thank you, Jessica, for asking. It's been so great. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as we did. And if you're starting to get a feel for this to be magnetic manifestation process, but aren't completely sold yet, let me point you to some of our free offerings. You can check out the expanded podcast episode called how to manifest anything you desire where Lacey, the founder, and I break down exactly what this process is all about. You can check out The Motivation, which is our testimonial library with thousands of testimonials of people who have manifested wild things using this process. Or you can check out our free mini workshop to find out why you're not manifesting and listen to one of our proprietary deep imagining audios where it's going to help you drop into your theta state and overwrite low self-worth limiting beliefs. Enjoy. We'll see you next week.